Good morning. It's great to have all of you here this morning. My name is Joe Carter. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Hill. And while I was preparing the message this week, I talked to some other more experienced pastors about what I should preach about. And they said uh, one of the best pieces of advice they gave me was to preach about what your people need to hear about. So what is it that the people of Grace Hill need to hear about? From some of the conversations I've had recently, I thought it might be time for our people to hear about work. Work's a rather broad term, so when I say work, I'm referring to what you do, whether you get paid for it or not, on a daily basis, that you do because you have to, rather than because you want to. For most of us, work is whatever we answer when people say, what do you do for a living? Some of you have told me about your aggravations and frustrations at work, and I know some of you are looking for jobs, some of you are looking for change of careers. Some of you have recently started new jobs. Um, in my own family, my wife Misty, after months of searching, she started a new job this week. So almost everyone in our church is struggling with some kind of work issue or is praying for somebody who is. And that's not all that surprising, since work takes up such a huge part of our lives. Some researchers estimate that the average worker spends 90,000 hours during their life in work. And considering how much time our life is consumed by work, it's surprising we don't hear more about it from a Christian perspective. If God is having to spend this much time in any one thing, we should hear what he has to say about it. So today I want to talk to you about what God has to say about your work. I want to give you some encouragement and some good news. But before we get to the good news, we have to talk about the bad news. And the bad news is that your work is cursed. Before we get started, though, let me pray for us. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come before you today. Help us as we search your word that we might hear what you have to say about work. Help us leave today with a better understanding of how the gospel affects our jobs. And we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. So please turn your Bibles, your Bible apps, to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be reading from chapters 2, verse 17 through 22. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, you please stop by the Connect table after the service this morning. We'd love to give you a Bible as a free gift to us from here at, us here at Grace Hill. The first verse in the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that these are the words of Koaleth. Now, this is a name that's kind of hard to translate, so sometimes some translations use the teacher and some use the preacher. And so for our purposes this morning, I'm going to go refer to him as the preacher. And throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher comes across as something of a downer. He's... He seems to have particularly negative feelings about work. In verses 17 through 22, he says, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the ones who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. 
So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. What's your first impression when you hear that text? If you're you're like me, you're probably wondering, what in the world is this despair and pessimism doing in the Bible? Why exactly did God want this message about work to be forever recorded in his holy scripture? In a moment, we'll consider that question. But for now, I want you to think about the passage as being a bridge between a time that came before the preacher and a future time that comes after him. The past the preacher is looking back to is Genesis 3 in the garden, just after Adam and Eve committed cosmic treason against God. This is the story of the fall, where God cursed the serpent, curses Eve, and curses Adam. In his curse on Adam, God says, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. It says, from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Some Old Testament scholars argue that this isn't just talking about farming. They believe the clause, by the sweat of your brow, is a metaphor that means you will earn your living by the sweat of your brow. And that certainly fits with what the preacher is talking about in Ecclesiastes. He's referring to the all pervasive effects of the curse that our sin brought upon the world in Genesis 3 and how it affects all the activities of humans. The Hebrew word that Genesis 3 uses for painful toil is a synonym of the words the preacher uses 36 times in Ecclesiastes for toilsome. Now, toilsome labor is work that is incessant, exhausting, or, is, or that is extremely hard. And the teacher is saying here that what makes the life of work so wretched is that it's often a waste of time. There's often a disconnect between outcome and how much effort we put into something. And you might think the toilsome labor the preacher is talking about is just manual labor. But the preacher has given us a perspective of a very super smart king of Israel. This is not somebody who is working with their hands. The preacher isn't just talking about the work of farmers or day laborers. He's talking about the type of person, as it says in verse 21, who labors with knowledge, wisdom, and skill. He's referring to the type of people that we'd call knowledge workers, like most of you are here today. His perspective is also not that of a middle manager who is frustrated because he can't get ahead. The perspective he's presenting is from a person who at the time was considered the the wisest, the most powerful, and the most accomplished man in the nation. He's kind of an equivalent of Socrates, Thomas Jefferson, and Steve Jobs all rolled in one. And yet he says his work was nothing but toil and anxious striving that ended up being meaningless. We might be tempted to summarize the point he's making in this passage by saying, work is hard, and then you die. But that's not quite it. 
He's saying that work is meaningless because you die. About 100 years after the death of the Apostle Paul, a church leader named Tertullian wrote a book called Apology for the Christians. And in that book, Tertullian writes about a Roman emperor who would ride through the empire in his chariots. And while all the people were cheering and praising his name, he would have somebody in the back of the chariot that says, remember, you're just a man. In other words, the emperor was being reminded of the message of the preacher. You're eventually going to die. All your accomplishments are going to be left to somebody else. So don't get too wrapped up in this applause because it doesn't mean anything. Death makes a difference to our work. If we were immortal, if we live forever, you can enjoy the work yourself forever. You can protect it and see that it will always be valued. But because we die, we leave our legacy in the hands of other people. And those people are likely to be foolish. They're likely to mess it up or do something to forget it. If this is the fate of kings and emperors, the fate of people whose names are written in the history books, how much more meaningless is our own work with the common people? Will our own toil and anxious striving be just as meaningless? The first time I ever really pondered that question was about 30 years ago. In 1988, I joined the Marines, and soon after I was sent to Memphis, Tennessee, um, I was sent to a naval station outside of Memphis for training. And at this air station, there was various schools for different aviation jobs for the Navy and the Marine Corps. And there wasn't anything particularly nicer, fancier, important about this base. But it was very status conscious. Everybody there was obsessed with where they ranked and how their, where they, the status they held. Everyone had a peck, place in the pecking order, and we all judged everyone else by where they fit in. We were, of course, judged by our rank, and being a private, I was the lowest rank on the military ladder. And we were judged on what school we were in, with the more technical jobs having higher status. And within the schools, we were judged also as the, the smarter kids and the smarter students were considered more worthy than anybody else. Somehow, I had managed to do well enough on an aptitude test that I was placed in a school for aviation electricians. And all things considered, it was a great job. Most people in the Marine Corps would have been loved to have this kind of job. But at the air station, this school was kind of like in the middle of the pack in the ranking. It wasn't, that, it wasn't that prestigious. So from the very beginning, I kind of had this status anxiety about where my place was. And my school was nine months long, and we would go to class for nine hours a day, five days a week. It was very intense. And every week, we would, every couple of weeks, we'd have a test. And if you failed the test, you didn't move on. You had to go before a review board who would decide your fate, whether you were smart enough continuing in the school. And if the review board didn't think you were smart enough, you'd be dropped from the class, and you'd be sent up the street to work as an aviation firefighter, which was considered a lower status school. So I was never good at math, was never good at science, I was never that good at studying. So of course, eventually it came to the point where I failed the section. And I should have gone and I just admitted, this is not the place for me. This is not what I was cut out for. I wasn't good at technical work, and I should have asked them just to drop me, to let me go, to let me move on to something else. And I could have gone on to fulfill every little boy's dream to go on to be a firefighter. But I was so wrapped up in the status game. I was so wrapped up in thinking I needed to stay here because I didn't want to fall lower down on, this, on the ladder. 
I was so caught up in anxious striving that I asked the review board, begged them to let me stay. So they agreed to give me a second chance, but I had to wait a couple of months for the next class to start so I could catch up where that section was. So in the meantime, I joined all the other rejects and failures as part of the school's janitorial staff. And every day we would clean the restrooms and we would take out the trash and we would sweep and mop and buff the floors over and over and over again. And we would stand outside in the hallway looking in the classrooms, watching our fellow friends and seeing where we wanted to be, that striving that we wanted to be. And we would pretend not to be ashamed when our friends would make fun of us or mock us or when the instructors would point to us and say, that's what happens to you when you don't apply yourself. Now I've had worse jobs. I've had harder jobs, both in and outside the Marine Corps. But that was the first job where I really understood how the combination of toil and anxious striving can make work just utterly meaningless. That was my first initiation into the world of seeking my worth and my identity in my work. And what made it all the worse is that in feeling sorry for myself for being a school janitor, I was disrespecting the memory of my late grandfather, a man who I loved and respected. For most of his adult life, my grandfather worked as a school janitor at Cisco High School, a small rural school in, East, in Central Texas that only had about 100 students. So as a private in the Marine Corps, I was probably making more money than he did when he was raising five kids. Somehow, I think uh, I was thinking of my grandfather scrubbing urinals and scraping the gum from the underside of the desk. And I can see him asking, as did the preacher, what do people get from the toil and anxious striving for which they labor under the sun? Now earlier I said this was a bridge passage between the past and the future. And the past, as we saw, was to the curse of Adam in Genesis 3. The future it connects to is the gospel. And here's the key to understanding Ecclesiastes. When the preacher lists all the things, the ways the world is meaningless, he's talking about life without God. He's using what today we might call a thought experiment. The preacher keeps using the phrase under the sun because he wants us to look from it from a human-centric perspective of what we today would call a secularist worldview. If there's no eternal life, then work is meaningless. If God either doesn't exist or doesn't care about humans, then life is meaningless. And if you don't serve God, then the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 1-2, everything is meaningless. But because of Jesus, everything, including our work, is not meaningless. He gives it meaning. He transforms it. The preacher gives us the thought experiment to show us what life would be like in a purely secular world without God. But Jesus provides a context for the book, to the book of Ecclesiastes. He provides a contrast by showing what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. Without Jesus, we should be miserable. We should find our work toilsome and hard. But Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdens, and I will give you rest. And Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians two sixteen that God loves us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope 
Without Jesus, our work really is ultimately pointless. But because of Jesus, all our actions, including our work, is transformed into something new. As Paul tells us, creation was subjected to frustration. He's referring back to the curse of Adam. But has now been liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In Jesus, our activity ultimately becomes meaningful because we live forever. We're not going to die. Without Jesus, our work is unfulfilling. But as Paul would say, so what? Why do we look for work to be fulfillment? What in this world can bring us fulfillment? Nothing under the sun can satisfy our needs for any more than a brief period of time. Our ultimate satisfaction can only come in knowing and gaining Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. When we live in God's kingdom, we don't find our, need to find our satisfaction in work or identity and our jobs. We find satisfaction in the only place it can be ultimately found in Jesus. So that's the good news of our work. When you serve Jesus, your work is transformed. It's transformed from pointlessness to meaningfulness. That doesn't mean, though, that Jesus is going to completely take away the curse. Even after you become a Christian, there'll be times, many times, maybe for some of us, most times, when work is toilsome and hard. But the nature and meaning and ultimate purpose of your work has radically changed. And it's radically changed in three important ways. And I want to talk about some of the ways that the three reasons why our work can go from uh, meaningless to where we can be happy in our toil. And the first reason we can be happy in our toil is because we are called to our work by God. A recent survey by the Barnard Group found that most Christians think most occupations can be considered callings. But they also found that within these occupations, there's kind of a hierarchy, with the ministry jobs being up on top and more technical jobs kind of lower down. More than half of Christians say a pastor, a missionary, a worship pastor, or even a parent is usually a calling. And slightly fewer than half think that being an accountant, a pediatrician, a firefighter, or a non-pastoral church staff is sometimes a calling. And only 3% thought that being a school janitor is usually a calling. And about a third admitted that it sometimes could be a calling. I expect that during my lifetime, my grandfather never heard anyone tell him that his work was important to God or that his work was a calling. Even today, most Christians would say, that's not a calling, that's just something he has to do to make a living. Which that got me thinking about my own calling. From the age of 12 until now, I've usually had more than one job at a time, so I've had a lot of jobs, and I counted up for this, for this message, and I counted 37 distinct jobs I've had over the years. And right now, I work as a journalist, I work as a writer and an editor. In the past, I worked as a, white, a waiter, a golf caddy, a limo driver. I worked as an apprentice to an oil field electrician and would pull motors off pump jacks. And I worked as an apprentice to a, a farrier and I pulled horseshoes off ponies. I worked in a factory making emergency brakes for four Tauruses. And I worked on the flight line fixing the F-18s, the computer systems of the F-18s. 
So which of these jobs would you say is my calling? If I were to rank all 37 jobs out on a list and asked you, which of these are my calling, what criteria would you use? Would you look at it and say, well, here's the one that, that paid the most money. Or here's the one that probably gave you the highest status. Or here's the one that probably gave you the most fulfillment. That's not the way G Jesus looks at our work. That's not the way he judges it. All 37 jobs were my calling because God had called me to each and every one of those. Your calling is not just your dream job. Your calling is not just the job that pays you the most money or that uh, you, get so, you get the most excited about. Your calling is whatever God has called you to do at a specific time in a specific place. If you have a job right now, it's because God has called you to that job. Now, of course, there's some jobs that aren't a calling. God didn't call anybody to go work at the strip club or to sell peddle dope to school children. He's not calling anybody to sell stolen precious moments figurines from the back of their van. But if you have a job that's a legitimate job and is serving your neighbors, that's a calling that God has given you. At the time, I didn't really realize it. At the time, I had these 37 different jobs. I would rarely have thought that this is what God wanted me to do. But that was because I didn't realize how I was serving my neighbor in these roles. But what if you don't like your job? That's a question that often pops up. That's a question that popped up in our household this last couple of months. Are you stuck doing what you don't want to do just because God has called you that? And the answer is no, of course not. Think of God controls every job and every occupation in the world. Think of God as like the ultimate CEO. All jobs belong to him. If you want to enter the departmental transfer, he has no problem with you using your skills to go somewhere else. In fact, you should be seeking what Amy Sherman calls your vocational sweet spot. And this is when, where your gifts and your passions meet the needs of the world and meet the priorities of God. Where those areas overlap is where your sweet spot. And that's where you should be seeking to, to work for most of your life. Now, there are times, of course, when we can't quite get there, that sweet spot. You may have called a certain job because you need to feed your family or because it's the only job you can find in the economy. You may have to take a certain job because you need experience or training to, to move up the ladder. You, need, you may have um, physical or emotional pain right now that's limiting what you can do. And whatever reason you can't get there, you can still trust that God is using you right now, right where you are, to serve him. Which brings to our second reason we can be happy in our toil. We are called to imitate God's work. How do we serve God in our work? If you ask most Christians, they'll give you an answer that kind of revolves around the two big E's, ethics and evangelism. They will say we should be ethical at our work because we need to set an example for other people. We need to show them how God wants us to live. Or they'll say that we need to use our work to be evangelists. We need to bring the lost to Christ through our workplace as a missionary field. It's not that those answers are wrong. There's nothing wrong with either of those. I mean, we should do both, but it's limited. That's not exactly all there is to being uh, serving God through our work. Because we are made in God's image, he uses us to serve the needs of our neighbors. In fact, for most of us, the labor that we do from nine to five, the work we do when we engage in our jobs, is the primary way 
we serve our neighbors. As Robert Banks says, God should be our vocational model. Since we and our neighbors benefit from the work of God, we should do the same. In his book, Faith Goes to Work, Bank describes the various sorts of work God does and the various sorts of work that we can kind of imitate God in, the, in our own work. I'm going to read off some of these categories, um, but these aren't ranking. They're not, there's, nothing, there's not one group that's higher status than the other because, again, God doesn't look at the work the way we do. He doesn't judge by the same standard. He doesn't say, this job pays more, therefore it's more worthy. So the first category I want to mention is redemptive work, work in which we imitate God's saving and reconciling actions. This is work we often associate with ministry, such as pastors, evangelists, and missionaries. But it can also include occupations such as artists, writers, songwriters, or others who incorporate redemptive elements in their creative productions. Next, there's creative work, in which we imitate God's fashioning of the physical and human world. God gives us creativity to imitate and express the truth and beauty in creation. Our people in the arts, sculptors, actors, painters, musicians, poets, and so on, display this as do a wide range of craftsmen, such as potters, weavers, metalworkers, interior designers, carpenters, builders, fashion designers, architects, novelists, and urban planners. Then there's providential work, where we imitate God's provision for and sustaining of both humans and creation. Now, almost any job that creates or maintains order can fall into this category. Creating and maintaining order is a role for under many spheres, such as government workers, politicians, public utility workers, and city clerks. It also includes works in public safety, such as firefighters and police officers, and those who do environmental work, such as school janitors or garbage collectors, and then those who do the work in the economic realm, whether they're economics professors or accountants or supermarket clerks. The fourth type of work is justice work, where we imitate God's maintenance of justice. Now, this type of work includes judges, lawyers, paralegals, government regulators, legal secretaries, city managers, prison guards, diplomats, and law enforcement personnel, all jobs that participate in God's work of maintaining justice. And next, there's revelatory work, in which we imitate God's work to enlighten with truth. People who do this type of work include teachers, homeschooling parents, scientists, journalists, scholars, and most writers. And finally, there's compassionate work, in which we imitate God's involvement in comforting, healing, guiding, and shepherding. And roles that reflect this aspect of God's labor include doctors, nurses, paramedics, dietitians, hospice workers, psychologists, therapists, social workers, pharmacists, etc. A key step in being happy in our toil is to recognize which vocational model most reflects the work you do and recognizing the value that God places on that type of work. So before you go back to work on Monday, I want you to spend a couple of minutes thinking about which model you fit into. Think about how God is using your work in the same way he does. Think about how God is using your work in particular to serve your neighbors. And finally, the third reason we can be happy in our tool is because God knows how he is using your work, even if you may not know before you get to heaven. Now I'm a huge movie buff, and I've seen literally thousands of movies, but there's only one movie I've seen more than 20 times, and that's It's a Wonderful Life. 
because it's usually shown at Christmas time, a lot of people think it's a Christmas movie, but it's not. It's not, not really. It's more of a movie about calling. It's a movie about community and faith and how our work affects our neighbors. So be warned if you haven't seen the movie yet, I'm about to spoil a 72-year-old movie here. The story is about George Bailey, a man who has so many problems in his life that he's thinking about killing himself on Christmas Eve. As he's standing on a bridge about to jump off, he ends up saving a guardian angel named Clarence. And Clarence shows George, kind of gives him a vision of all the ways he's changed the world or changed and changed the people in his community. And what makes George Bailey one of the most fascinating and complex characters in popular culture is not only that he continually chooses to help others and put others first and puts his own needs behind everybody else's, it's that he continually suffers for them. Now, Capra's movie is sentimental, but it's not a simplistic morality play. It's true that it ends on a happy note. On Christmas Eve, people come through with the money and George is saved. But on Christmas Day, George is going to wake up to find his life hasn't changed that much from when he was wanting to commit suicide. George will remain a frustrated artist. He'll be scraping by on a meager salary and living in a drafty old house in a one-stoplight town. All that has really changed for George is that he has gained a better and deeper appreciation of the value of faith, of friends, of family, of community. And what's changed is George has now seized the world in a different way. He's seen that all those things are much more important than just worldly ambition. Now, Capra's underlying message in this movie is radically subversive. It's not something we're used to in America, but it's also radically biblical. It's the message that by, sell, by helping our fellow men and women, even to the point of subordinating our own needs and desires, we can achieve both greatness and true happiness. And one of the reasons I watch this film over and over and over again is because George has given something I desperately want. I desperately want an angel to come to me and show me how my work matters. I want an angel to come to me and show me how I'm changing the world and affecting it for the better. Now, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. But I'm hoping that when we get to heaven, we'll be given the same glimpse of how we affected the world that George Bailey was given. Of course, by then, we may not care. We may be so busy adoring Jesus that we don't even think about the past. But I think we will. I think our work matters today, and it will matter for eternity. And I think because we have so much time, God will take a little bit of time to show us all the ways we affected other people. Now, my grandfather died about 40 years ago, but I think God is probably still showing him today all the ways he affected other people through his work at Cisco High School. In the meantime, though, before we get to heaven, before we get to see how things worked out, I want you to know that the work you do at your job right now is having more of an effect on the world than you could ever know. If you could see what God sees, you'd be amazed at what he's using and how he's using you for his own glory. For instance, you might be an accountant that catches the mistake that saves a department from having to make layoffs. And because that department didn't have to make layoffs, 
A man doesn't have to go search in a new town for a job. And because he didn't have to search for a new job and leave his town, he gets to stay with his mother. And he gets to be with his mother a little bit longer as she, before she passes away. And his grandchildren get a few more memories of their grandmother. Or you might be a homeschooling mom who doesn't realize that the math lesson you're struggling over and you're just trying to get through, that's the one that's going to inspire your child to become an engineer. And because your daughter became an engineer and she designed a bridge that didn't fall down in the earthquake, and because that bridge didn't fall down, people were saved from disaster. Or you may be a school janitor who wakes up on a Sunday morning to open the door of a building for a church just like this one. And through the door you unlocked comes a man who is desperate, who has nothing left to lose. And on the floor you scrubbed with your own hands, he kneels down and is saved because he, he turned his faith to Jesus. Until you get to heaven, you may not know how your work is affecting the world. You won't get these kind of glimpses until you get there. But God knows. God sees every day all the ways you're changing the world. God sees how you're making a difference every single day. He knows how he's using your work because he's called that you to do that work. And because he loves you, you can give your work to God knowing that he's going to use it for his own good purposes. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us a glimpse into how you are using us, Lord. Show everyone in this congregation just a tiny glimpse of how they're making a difference in other people's lives. How what they do in the day-to-day toil and drudgery of work is changing the world and serving their neighbor and making the world just a little bit better place. Help us, Lord, when work gets hard, to not be frustrated, to not be um, broken by the, the, the struggles and the stress that come. Help us know, Lord, that even though the work is still cursed, work is still hard, that you're transforming it into something beautiful. You're transforming it for your own glory and your own majesty. Help us, Lord, to remember that when we get up on Monday morning, and we go to do a job that maybe we don't want to do, that we're doing it not for us, but for you. We ask all these things in your holy name. Amen.